0: As he sets down into the top section of the course, about 15 moguls into this top here, a nice 720, stops the landing, tight skiing through the middle section, Jeremy Bloom lighting up this Olympic course right now.
2: That's my brother, Jeremy, crushing his qualifying run at the 2006 Winter Olympics. He was number one in the world at the time. Jeremy is an incredible skier. He broke the record for the most consecutive World Cup wins by any mogul skier in history, and he represented the United States at the Olympics twice. And that's not all he's good at. He was also a star football player at the University of Colorado, which happens to be my alma mater as well.
0: Greenberg, play action, lost one, got his man!
2: This was one of Jeremy's first big plays as a starter, after he boosted himself from a bench roll. It's not easy to be a professional Olympic-level mogul skier while also playing college football at the highest level. But it wasn't that difficulty that prevented Jeremy from seeing out his college career. It was the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or the NCAA, which is the governing body of college sports.
3: Drew Henson made millions of dollars playing in the Yankee system a uh, baseball professionally while playing amateur football as their quarterback at Michigan. This shouldn't be an issue, right? You know, I am I'm, I'm a professional skier, Drew is a professional baseball player. I'm not making millions and he is, and so you know, there there shouldn't be a you know, a real real issue.
2: But there was an issue. The NCAA requires student athletes to maintain amateur status. Amateur meaning they're competing for the love of the sport, not as a professional. People sometimes wax poetic about this as a virtue. But for college athletes, amateurism also means they can't make any money from their sport. College athletes are required to get an amateurism certificate in order to a. compete and b. qualify for sports scholarships. And making money from their sport means any kind of money, including money won at tournaments outside the NCAA, or sponsorship payments from companies for using their products on social media. After two years of complying with the NCAA's stringent amateurism rules, Jeremy realized that he truly needed to make money from his skiing career to get by. But that decision cost him in other ways.
3: Coming into my junior season, the NCAA put out a press release and informed the University of Colorado that they had made Jeremy Bloom permanently ineligible to play college football.
2: It wasn't skiing that cut his football career short. It was the NCAA and its rules, which robbed college athletes of their right to sign sponsorship deals. But Jeremy didn't go down without a fight. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. I invited my brother Jeremy to share his story because he's one of the countless athletes who feels exploited and cheated by the NCAA. Today, we're looking at how the NCAA has used the idea of amateurism to stop college athletes from making money.
4: That I just realized I, I don't think I can do this anymore. My body had started breaking down. I was, I was just tired all the time, which is why I have so much respect for for people who were able to do it for all four years, But but they shouldn't have to do it under those conditions.
2: We'll show how this fight went all the way to the Supreme Court.
1: Why shouldn't we think of it in just that kind of way, that these are competitors all getting together with total market power, fixing prices?
2: And we'll hear how. After a century of working for no pay, college athletes have finally begun to make money off the big business that exists because of their talents and sacrifices. To really understand the injustices of college sports, I turn to my favorite former college athlete.
3: Jeremy Bloom, younger brother of Molly Bloom, and you know, spent most of my life focused on athletics, two sports, football, and skiing.
2: As you may remember from our interview with Jeremy in season one, Jeremy's also CEO and founder of a tech company and a charity, and he's in the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. But before all that, he was a kid with a gift for sports and dreams of playing at the nearby University of Colorado.
3: In the early 90s, they were winning national championships. So i uh, that was always my dream school. And Gary Barnett, who was the head coach, called me, you know, in my senior season, um, after a long recruiting trail that didn't look like it was leading to anywhere, uh, and said, Hey, we want to offer you a full ride scholarship to play football here. And it was, you know, truly one of the best days of my life. I dropped the phone and just, you know, freaked out.
2: It was a dream come true, a moment Jeremy had thought may never come. And just to get that moment, he'd already had to learn about and make sure not to break the NCAA's strict rules about high school athletes and recruiting.
4: I remember watching this video at the Kingwood Classic, it's a basketball tournament outside of Houston, when I was in high school, and they showed basically all the things that you could not do, you absolutely could not do, if you wanted to be a college athlete.
2: That's Adam Harris, an award-winning journalist, author, and staff writer at The Atlantic. Adam has written extensively about academia and college sports. And he's a former college basketball player, first at Lon Morris in Texas, and then at Alabama A&M. Adams stopped playing before he graduated, meaning he got to experience college as an athlete and then as a regular student.
4: You know, there were things that I could do that some of my classmates who were still athletes could not do, including, you know, sometimes professors might buy me lunch because I would be hungry and, you know, they couldn't do that for, for the athletes because that would be an undue benefit that they were receiving outside of their meal plan or whatever it might be. And so effectively, they just implement a lot of rules, a lot of strict rules, and it's very easy to break some of those rules.
2: So why does the NCAA get to set all of these rules? In theory, it's because the NCAA, which is a nonprofit organization, is supposed to make sure that college sports are played fairly. Later on, we'll talk about whose fairness they were originally designed to protect. In practice, the NCAA gets to set all these rules because they have a powerful monopoly on how every aspect of college sports is run. One of those aspects is compensation. The NCAA prohibits college athletes from earning money based on their sports career. Central to these rules is the concept of the student-athlete, a term that the NCAA coined in the 1950s. That wording, student-athlete, implies that college athletes are in a unique position, a special type of student, but a student first. Describing players this way allowed the NCAA to tell athletes that if they followed the amateurism rules, they would be rewarded with an education, as opposed to money. And by following these rules, they were upholding the fairness of amateurism. But the term has been used as a cover for some very unfair policies. We'll get into the history in a few minutes, but for now, just know that the NCAA's creation of the term student-athlete, served another important purpose. It created a label for the people doing the actual work on the field and made it clear that those people were students, not employees. Because at the end of the day, college sports is a huge business, and that business relies on the players. A lot would change if those players were considered employees entitled to a paycheck, which may explain why the NCAA has gone to extreme lengths to enforce their rules about what does and doesn't count as compensation. When Jeremy was 19, nobody was offering him money to play football, but he was a professional skier and a member of Team USA. After getting that call from Gary Barnett asking him to play football at Colorado, Jeremy had considered giving up on skiing but his football coach actually encouraged him not to.
3: Coach Barnett said, hey, you gotta go for that Olympics. And, and I certainly agreed. So I deferred a year, went to ski in, in those Olympics, made the team, ended the season as a number one ranked skier in the world.
2: Being an Olympian meant Jeremy was getting endorsement offers. And that was a good thing because being a pro skier is expensive. Olympic skiers are expected to cover travel expenses like airfare and lodging at some of the world's top ski resorts which can run up to at least $25,000 a season. Jeremy didn't have a team paying him a salary or a stipend. He had flights to book, gear to buy, and training sessions to pay for.
3: 100% of the expenses of Olympic sports through corporate endorsements. If you don't have corporate endorsements, you, you know you have to work a second job, third job, which many Olympians do.
2: None of the money Jeremy made had anything to do with football. Meanwhile, programs like Colorado's football team were generating plenty of money. But the NCAA was not willing to budge on its definition of amateurism. That meant no endorsements for Jeremy.
3: The NCAA basically said, well, okay, well, if you're, you know, Jeremy, if you want to come play football at the University of Colorado inside the NCAA, you, you can't accept a dollar of endorsement money from any of your Olympic sponsors. And, you know, that was that was a hard pill to swallow because it, what they're basically saying is like, you have to quit skiing.
2: Regardless of what else they had going on, NCAA athletes were prohibited from making money by licensing their name, image, or likeness for use by sponsors. But at the same time, the NCAA and the University of Colorado could put his face on posters to advertise games, use his image in commercials for the
3: school, whatever they wanted. Even at 19, I'm like, this is wrong. Like This is fundamentally wrong. Like This shouldn't happen in in this country. First of all, why aren't the people that are generating billions of dollars for the NCAA – and the university, kept out of all revenue sharing. And not only kept out of revenue sharing, precluded from using their own name, their own likeness, and their own image to make any money.
2: Jeremy didn't want to enter college football under a cloud of controversy. But he was an Olympic skier, and he didn't want to give that up either. So he took the NCAA to court. At first, things looked good. The judge, Jeremy Drew, was a known Colorado football fanatic, and he was sympathetic. But in the end, Jeremy's case was doomed by a technicality. It wasn't even a technicality of federal or Colorado state law. It was an NCAA rule, number 19.8. (laughs) 19.8.
3: 19.8. <laughs> the restitution by Love It ultimately was the reason we lost that one. So.
2: Oh, 19.8.
3: Yeah, no, that's that number is stuck in my head forever.
2: Yeah, mine's 1955.
3: Not, and what does 1955 mean to
2: you? It's the federal statute uh, running an illegal, illegal <laughs> gambling business. <laughs>
3: Fair to say if I the number starts a, at 19, <laughs> with 19, it's not good for the Bloom family.
2: No, no, 19 is <laughs> not our lucky number. It's not our number. <laughs> the judge wanted to rule against the NCAA, but according to NCAA bylaw 19.8, if a higher court were to overturn that ruling at a later date, the NCAA could punish Jeremy's university. Because the NCAA is the highest authority in college sports, They have the ability to vacate wins and strip schools of their titles. That means if a team wins a game or a championship, but one of the winning players is later found to have violated NCAA rules, then that entire team's victory is erased from NCAA records. The NCAA also controls how many sports-related scholarships a program can offer. And of course, they control access to NCAA tournaments, So if the NCAA wants to, they can vacate entire seasons, take back championship trophies, bar teams from competing in the postseason, and cripple their recruiting prospects for years to come. NCAA bylaw 19.8 would have put all these threats on the table if the judge sided with Jeremy. So rather than open up the state's flagship university to those threats, the judge reluctantly ruled in favor of the NCAA.
3: In his ruling, Judge Hale said, you know, he chastised the NCAA. He said, this is, this is ridiculous. There's, there's precedent for the, this organization allowing professional athlete and an amateur athlete and he cited the examples that we put in the brief, Ricky Williams and Drew Henson. But ultimately, he, he said, I am not going to put the faith of, of my ruling and, and put the University of Colorado at Jeopardy based off that ruling.
2: This absurd situation left Jeremy with a stark choice. If he wanted to pursue his dream of playing college football, he'd have to renounce any money he made from skiing.
3: I ultimately concluded, I said, I, I don't care how much money I have when I'm 30 or whatever, like, if I don't do this, I will always look back and say, what if? Like, what if I would have taken that opportunity? So I, you know, emailed or called all my uh, sponsors and said, hey, you can't pay me anymore and we got to void the contracts. I, I made, the, I, I signed the signatures to void all of my contracts and agreements And I set out on a path to play college football.
0: There are over 360,000 NCAA student-athletes. And just about all of us will be going pro in something other than sports. Over the last 100 years, the NCAA has helped millions of student-athletes find their power outside the field, court, and rink.
2: That commercial aired during college sports broadcast in 2006, the 100th anniversary of the NCAA. I just want to pause here to point out the irony that, if that voiceover actor really was a student athlete, he would not have been allowed to get paid for doing that commercial. NCAA rules create a minefield for college athletes. And while they're happy to profit off of college sports themselves, the NCAA doesn't hesitate to crack down when they think a player is receiving compensation of any kind. Here's journalist Adam Harris again.
4: There was one case where where a student well, or one, one of the athletes at UNC was was injured and a professor couldn't even drive them to the hospital, right? Because they were using their car in order to take them to the hospital. It's just sort of extreme things like if if that happens and it gets reported to the NCAA, then they are likely to launch an investigation.
2: Investigations mean bad PR for schools, along with the potential of vacated wins, stripped scholarships, and real financial consequences. Often it's Black athletes, and athletes in financially unstable circumstances, who are most harmed by the NCAA's stringent rules around amateurism. These athletes may benefit from scholarships, but the sheer amount of time and energy they put into their sport doesn't necessarily pay the bills. And beyond that, the sports commitment can stop them from earning money to pay for their most basic needs. Former NCAA basketball player Shabazz Napier laid out his circumstances to Fox News back in 2014.
5: You know, we're, we're definitely best to get a scholarship to our universities. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't, that doesn't cover everything.
3: There's hungry nights where I don't, I'm not able to eat, and, uh, but I still got to play up to my you know,
5: capabilities.
2: But if this is what the rules around amateurism do to the so-called amateurs, then why is the NCAA obsessed with upholding those rules? How did we get here?
4: So early in the 20th century, you had college sports, but it was in some ways kind of like a lawless, a lawless game, right? Where it was incredibly injury prone, you know, think about football, right? Players were getting very seriously injured. So they, the colleges wanted to come together to find ways to regulate that, to prevent some of those injuries.
2: Between 1900 and 1905, at least 45 young men died of football injuries. Broken necks, broken backs, and concussions the kind of things that happen when strong young men collide at high speeds without much protection. In 1905, after his own son was seriously injured while playing for Harvard, President Teddy Roosevelt called a meeting of college presidents at the White House. The goal was to standardize rules and safety practices, to keep football going while keeping the players alive.
4: But there was also another thing that was happening where people were effectively bringing in ringers. If you're supporting a team, you want to see that team win. You want the best players on your team, and they were trying to find ways to get the best players on their team, and one way that they could do that was was by paying them.
2: Paying players was seen as cheating. It brought in ringers, better players who could demolish the kids they played against. And unlike those kids, these ringers were oftentimes the kind of people who actually needed to work for a living. To the Ivy Leaguers of the early 20th century, this was all very embarrassing. So as college presidents reformed the game, they agreed that players should not be compensated in any way, apart from the education they received from their university.
4: What people often forget about the NCAA is that, yes, it has its, its figurehead leadership executive board, but it's, it's led effectively by the colleges, by the college presidents and by those leaders. And so they effectively got together and, and put a stop to paying players, put a stop and, and implemented rules that would keep a lot of players safe.
2: That foundation of the NCAA made college football the highly regulated sport we know today. The NCAA came to hold power over the entire college sports landscape with the sole authority to decide what counted as official, who got to play and who got to profit, and who didn't.
4: It was creating an association that could regulate the sort of rules of the sport and put a broad broad umbrella over the rules of the sport, um, but also to keep players' minds on what was supposed to be their primary focus, and that was supposed to be their academics.
2: Even with the new regulations, college sports injuries kept happening. And by the 1950s, the NCAA was looking for a way to avoid footing the bill for nursing injured athletes back to health. That's one of the reasons why NCAA Executive Director Walter Byers coined the term student athletes. It allowed the organization to claim that athletes playing for a school didn't have the same rights as workers doing a job for that same school. In the 1950s, when the widow of a college athlete who had died of a football injury sued the school for workman's comp, the Colorado Supreme Court sided with a and Players weren't workers, and the school, they said, was not in the football business. But it was a business, and today... That business is bigger than ever. When a 24-hour sports network first hit the airways in 1979, college sports changed forever. Schools and the NCAA itself were already making money from game tickets and merchandise. But once the rights to broadcast college sports events became a hot commodity, the amount of money in college sports exploded. Let's just look at some of the numbers here. Last year, ESPN was projected to make between $350 and $400 million from broadcasting college sports football games. ESPN pays the NCAA for the rights to those games. Overall, the college football industry is estimated to have generated over $14 billion in revenue every year. The NCAA and each one of its member schools is tax exempt. So when the University of Alabama's athletics department logs that it made a profit of 16 million, they refer to it as operating at a surplus. A lot of that surplus goes to head coaches. In July, the University of Georgia gave their football coach Kirby Smart a contract over $112,500,000 over 10 years. SMART's SEC rival, Nick Saban, makes $9.5 million a year to coach the Alabama Crimson Tide. Other head coach salaries range from $850,000 a year to $8.5 million. Coaches' salaries at elite college programs are actually higher than they are for many coaches in the pros. And it's not just because their programs are bringing in so much money. It's also because they don't have to share a dime with the athletes.
3: The analogy would be like Apple is a great company, right? Worth over a trillion dollar market cap. It would be like the all of the employees who have built Apple working for continuing education credits that Apple pays for. And they don't get a salary. There's no bonus. There's no stock. And by the way, if they if they want to go do an interview on TV and get paid for it and talk about how they built Apple, they can't. Or if they do do it, they can't get paid for it. Or if they want to do, you know, be on a cover of a magazine because they built some great product and get paid for that, they can't.
2: The NCAA not only follows this logic, they lean into it as their defense. And for decades, they've argued that this fact, the fact that athletes are unpaid, is what makes college sports unique.
4: The NCAA was arguing people love this. People love the idea of amateurism. They love their sports. And if we paid the players, that would sully the sports, that would sully the experience for these people who are just doing it for the love of the game, who are just watching because they love the game, they love their team.
2: But do fans really believe that their love of the game depends on college athletes not getting paid? And how do today's athletes experience the consequences of this argument by the NCAA? The NCAA invented the term student-athlete to draw a distinction between professional, paid athletes, and college students who participated in athletics. The idea was that student-athletes were still students first. But listening to a student-athlete schedule, it doesn't sound anything close to the typical student experience.
4: We woke up, I think we had practice at 6.30, It was effectively conditioning practice, so we ran a couple of miles, lifted weights, and then just did some shoot around to sort of get our arms loose again. Then I had a nine, you know, showered, ate some food, you know, sort of the powdered eggs that they have in the cafeteria had a class at nine o'clock, lasted till nine fifty. I had another class and then I was back in practice for effectively another hour and a half. Showered again. That's um,
2: Adam I've, describing his life as a college basketball player. Into, which compared to your typical student schedule Sounds a lot more like punching in and out of a job. We
4: have Open Gym, which is a voluntary Open Gym. But if you want to start, then and you want to keep your scholarship, because, you know, one of the things people forget is that these are effectively one-year renewable scholarships. Um, and so I, you, we would all be back at the gym for, for Open Gym, and that's effectively your entire day.
2: So for an athlete like Adam, practice wasn't voluntary if he valued his career. And at the same time... That career wasn't even providing enough financial support to afford
4: being a student. I got a partial basketball scholarship, ended up fleshing that out with a partial theater scholarship, which also paid me to work in the theater. And so effectively, when I was at Lawn Morris, I had, I had three jobs. I, I mean, it was, it was exhausting.
2: It's a grueling life for every college athlete no matter where they play or how much playing time they see. For most of his freshman year at Colorado, my brother Jeremy rode the bench as he got used to the exhausting routines of playing college sports. But then, with his team down in the third quarter against their arch-rival Colorado State, the coach called his number.
3: He said, "I, I want you to go return this punt. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And I ran back, grabbed my helmet. I was sitting on the bench for three quarters and now he wants to go return the first punt I've ever returned in my career. I never even was a punt returner in high school.
2: Big time college football games are every bit as intense as professional games, arguably more so. Jeremy was acutely aware of that as he took the field.
3: I started running out of the field, threw my helmet on and the moment really hit me looking around and I'm like, holy, you know, you know what? Just catch the ball, you know. Just, just, gosh, this is a big moment in my life. National television, eighty thousand people, in-state rivals, top twenty-five program, first punt return that I've ever had, and you know it was a big punt. Blue
0: on the twenty-four, showing that speed. It's got a wall. Huber gets blocked. Loon goes by for the touchdown.
3: Before I knew it, I was 75 yards in the end zone looking around the stadium going nuts. And uh, I was like, wow, this is what college football <laughs> is, is all about.
2: Turns out some of Jeremy's mogul skiing skills might have translated well to sprinting down a football field, dodging would-be tacklers. Soon, he was his team's number one punt and kick returner.
0: Here comes the mogul man, Touch to the outside, foot race.
2: Jeremy finished the season as a first-team All-American punt returner and began to see time as a receiver as well. But even as he made a name for himself at Colorado, Jeremy wasn't ready to give up on his mogul skiing career. Between his freshman and sophomore seasons, he won a gold medal in dual moguls at the World Ski Championships in Deer Valley. Between his sophomore and junior seasons, he decided to commit to a new goal— the 2006 Winter Olympics, which meant that, once again, he would need sponsors.
3: I didn't have the funds to pay for the coaches and the international travel, and there's not much the US ski team could do. And so I told the NCAA in January of that year, very publicly, that I'm accepting endorsement monies because the the next Olympics, the Torino Olympics, were two years away, and I had every intention on trying to go back and make my second Olympic team.
2: At the same time, he was drawing closer and closer to his other dream, playing in the NFL.
3: The two guys ahead of me both went to the NFL, and I was about to be the number one receiver on that team and certainly the number one kick and punt return. That was my dream. That was my goal. That was what I worked hard for. So coming into my junior season, it was really exciting. Jeremy
2: formally told the NCAA that he was going back to skiing and back to accepting sponsorship money for it. He expected some kind of response but didn't receive any word back for eight months. Then on the first official day of his junior season of football, the NCAA suddenly gave him his answer in public.
3: The day I got to camp, the NCAA put out a press release and informed the University of Colorado that they had made uh, Jeremy Bloom permanently ineligible to play uh, college football. And made my opportunity to play on my junior and senior season um, completely impossible.
2: Just like that, Jeremy's career as a college football player was over.
3: And I was, you know, just uh, probably one of the most frustrating days of my life um, that I had to reconcile and deal with the fact that I, I would never get those memories that I Wish I had sitting here today, like, God, I wonder what I could have done <laughs> my junior and senior season in, at the University of Colorado and those memories with my teammates that we all worked so hard for. And you know, But, but ultimately, that was not going to be my destiny.
2: But even though he lost to the NCAA, Jeremy still made the most out of his circumstances. With nothing standing in his way, he was able to get sponsorships back, focus on skiing, and football wasn't done with him.
3: Went to the Olympics in February of 2006. I think it it was February 14th I competed in Torino, and the next day flew to Indianapolis for the NFL Combine, met with 32 NFL teams the following week, and ultimately was drafted a month later by the Philadelphia Eagles.
2: But even as he moved forward, Jeremy never forgot what the NCAA had put him through and what it was still putting other athletes through. He followed closely as a series of lawsuits chipped away at the NCAA's power. In the case of O'Bannon versus NCAA, the organization was forced to pay over $42 million to athletes who had been featured in officially licensed NCAA video games without their consent and without seeing a dime of their profits. Multiple judges ruled that the NCAA was violating an antitrust law. And athletes, Jeremy included, began pushing for new laws altogether.
3: I met with a a bunch of state senators in Colorado and in Florida and across the country as this legislation was being drafted in California. And and when, you know, California came out, they were the first state. And they said, no student athlete in the state of California is going to be beholden to NCAA amateur rules. That was the day I knew it's over. Cause you got USC, you got UCLA, you got Stanford. You, you know, you got really good programs in the state of California that are important. And if other states don't want an unfair recruiting advantage which they don't, they're gonna have to level the playing field. Cause otherwise everyone would just go play in California, right? Cause <laughs> why wouldn't you?
2: As Florida and Colorado joined California in granting college athletes rights to their own name, image and likeness, the Supreme court took up a case focused on these same rights, National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Alston. As the NCAA's lawyer, Seth Waxman, defended the practice of preventing players from making money, he fell back on an old, tired argument.
3: Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For more than 100 years, the distinct character of college sports— has been that it's played by students who are amateurs, which is to say that they are not paid for their
5: play.
2: But Justice Clarence Thomas pointed out the hypocrisy of this practice when it came to everyone else who profited from it.
5: A matter of uh, curiosity to me, you put a lot of weight on focus on amateurism, and you look at the limitations of the benefits or pay to players. But is there a similar focus on the compensation to coaches to maintain that distinction between amateur coaches, coaches in the amateur ranks, as opposed to coaches in the pro ranks?
2: And Justice Elena Kagan called out the profit motives and the abuse of power that hid beneath the NCAA's high-minded words about college sports.
1: Schools that are naturally competitors as to athletes have all gotten together in an organization, an organization that has undisputed market power, and they use that power to fix athletic salaries at extremely low levels, uh, far lower than what the market would uh, set if it were allowed to operate. So uh, why shouldn't we think of it in just that kind of way, that these are competitors all getting together with total market power? Fixing prices.
2: A Supreme Court famous for its ideological divide seemed united when it came to criticizing the NCAA. On June 21, 2020, the court ruled unanimously that the NCAA was in the wrong. Just nine days later, the NCAA voted to change the rules it had fought so hard to preserve. Athletes would be able to profit off the use of their name, image, and likeness.
4: That was the signal for the NCAA to say that, OK, what is going to be coming down the pipe is effectively potentially that the court is going to force us to start paying the players for their labor. And so as a sort of holdover mechanism, they allowed name, image and likeness to, to sort of go into effect.
2: Just like that, the rules that had forced my brother Jeremy out of college football were gone.
4: It was deeply
3: gratifying. It was deeply, deeply gratifying after a two-decade journey fighting for what I just believed were basic human rights.
2: And athletes have already begun using those rights. Hey everyone, it's Haley Jones. I'm here to announce my super exciting new partnership with LifeBrand. That's Stanford basketball star Haley Jones, who's recently signed several deals to create sponsored social media content. She's one of the first female college athletes able to begin making money off her name as part of business practices.
3: First impression of my new F-250. Super excited. My dad used to drive a diesel. so And
2: that's LSU quarterback Miles Brennan receiving a Ford F-250 pickup truck in a commercial for a local Ford dealership. These kinds of deals were unthinkable just a few years ago. Still, many college athletes struggle to get by, and many of them worry about the trade-offs they have to accept. Because while schools do provide health care, there's no guarantee that an athlete will be covered later in life for injuries sustained while playing in college.
3: The big one is insurance, um, health insurance. You have a lot of kids that go to school and, and suffer really, really bad injuries that they they have for the rest of their life. Well, once you, once you graduate college, there's not a, you know, there's no insurance for you.
4: They're doing really grueling labor. If you've had to, you know, even just kind of running sprints during practice, you can very easily pull a hamstring or, or something like that, or, where, you know, you'll be out for a couple of weeks. And so, yeah, I think healthcare, it has to be wrapped into, has to be wrapped into that package.
2: There's also the hard truth that while they're allowed to do commercials or sponsored posts, which may earn them some money, college athletes still don't get a cut of the money they generate for their schools and the NCAA. While it's possible to make a living off individual promotions and sponsorships, the majority of college athletes are still mainly being compensated in scholarships. After the Alston decision, some people hope that the door is open to actual financial compensation for all the athletes who make the college sports industry run.
3: I think the next evolution here is, you know, we'll we'll be paying student athletes, not for all sports, the revenue generating sports, the student athletes in in those areas will will very likely sometime in the future, you know, be getting a, a salary.
2: And after years of fighting for college athletes rights, the time for real change could be just around the corner.
4: The NCAA is going to have to do something about this sooner than later. This has been a consistent drumbeat of lawsuits, of players um, trying to form unions since the, since the late 90s. I, I think that with this momentum that it's building, kind of with the NCAA conceding on name, image, and likeness, I think that it's sort of inevitable that at some point a sort of real structural change for those those athletes is, is coming down the pipe.
2: Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chugg, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Stephen Wood. Additional story editing from James Boo. Editing and scoring from Ben Chug. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canney is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torched, we speak with Judge Rosemary Aquilina, the Michigan judge who presided over the USA Gymnastics' Larry Nassar sex abuse trial on how legal action can bring closure to survivors of abuse. We want to speak out. We want justice. We want accountability. We want to be the voice for those who don't have a voice. And we're lacking in those cases. So much is going on that's not being reported. That's next time Untorched. Thanks for listening. As always, if you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.